Alan and Matinees on Main Street, a podcast about the history of the movies from the beginning. Three episodes ago, we officially entered the 1900s. If you look back from that point of view, people had been experimenting and inventing machines that could make pictures move for over a decade. People had been watching those pictures move for about six or seven years and they were witnessing those pictures being projected on large screens and walls now for over four years. During that time, they had experienced watching moving images of vaudeville performers, rushing trains, children misbehaving, presidents acting presidential, city traffic moving, boxers hitting each other, cavalries charging, wars being fought, Jesus being crucified on a cross, and people popping in and out of magical situations. Now that we've entered a new century, things haven't changed much. In fact, some film historians have considered this period of time a rather fallow one for the history of the movies, especially when, by 1905, an interest in visual storytelling starts to provide movies with a new way of presenting themselves. Still, I don't think the first five years of the 1900s could be considered that fallow a period, or even a bit of a slump. Historian Richard Abel has shown that due to the Edison Company's attempts to control the American market and destroy their competition, this period of time in American cinema became very lucrative to the French film companies. In 1903, that market was just starting. Still, despite this attempted throttling of American film manufacturing, there are real signs of growth and interest in the American movie market. I should mention that despite my recurring use of the word movie, that word wouldn't start regularly appearing until around 1908. Yes, a few people had used it in print, but at the beginning of the new century, the preferred phrase was moving pictures. There were still other names, particularly in small towns, that preferred to use the various marketing names of the projectors as a way of describing this novelty. Terms such as vitographs, biographs, cinematographs, cinedromes, and such. The English were particular in using the word cinematograph, even though it was a French brand. England's Robert Paul actually had his own brand available for use if the Brits had bothered, the theatrograph, which was later renamed the animatograph. So after a deep search using the phrase moving pictures, it's apparent that there was a growing sense of activity in America concerning moving pictures. For start, there was a lot of independent exhibition work going on, and that's a subject I'll cover in a few episodes or so. What I can say is that there were quite a number of local exhibitions given by people who own projectors, and in almost all these cases, these people bought films 
or borrowed them in order to make a presentation. Usually, they were at local churches, although sometimes it might be a local meeting place, such as the Opera House or some entertainment establishment. It's been mentioned that interest in the movies in the bigger cities had kind of peaked at this time. That may be what it looks like in an overall assessment of the way the vaudeville houses were dealing with movies, but the real activity at this time seems to have been below the surface. It seems that at this time, the movies were making appearances in other places, and businesses were keen to the idea that the movies could be used as a lure to bring in the public. For example, the Simpson Crawford Company, at that time one of New York City's most exclusive department stores, was showing movies. While the company had switched hands a number of times over the previous few decades or so, they were a truly high-class New York business to such a degree that they refused to move into Manhattan's high-volume, middle-class shopping districts. Instead, they continued to deal with New York City's wealthier patrons, expanding their retail footprint and even adding floors to their building, which by this time now included a recital hall where performers sang or played instruments and movies were shown. This is also the first attempt I've seen for the movies to be offered to the upper classes, and a very early sign of the movie's market expansion away from the lower classes. Another example of how the movies were spreading out from the vaudeville houses in New York was an article about Coney Island. Apparently, by 1903, the movies were much more popular near Coney Island than they were in Manhattan, at least according to one Brooklyn cop. He told one lady that she'd find a lot of them along the main drags just north of the beaches. Pictures that move, pictures that jump, and pictures that'll make you jump. He said, it's wonderful how this craze for moving pictures is holding up. We've had them for four or five years now, and they seem to be just as big a drawing card as ever. He did mention that keeping the films up to date really helped, but the films in Manhattan were also updated. Another change in New York's attitude towards the movies was its use in the city's celebration of its 250th anniversary. The plan was to offer movies and stereoscopic reactions of the city's past in many of the city's parks in the summer of 1903 as part of the celebration. The movies would also include films of the local police and fire departments, as well as a recreated fire run staged for the cameras. It is apparent that the movies could now be found in a significant number of vaudeville houses throughout America, but it was also apparent that rather than saturating the vaudeville market, interest in seeing pictures move instead expanded out into smaller towns and cities, and that besides the local projection nerds, a small but significant number of people were developing into regional traveling exhibitors. This kind of life was demanding, and you needed to understand the expenses that this kind of traveling entailed. You also needed to learn how to control your additional expenses. 
already the market was predominantly ruled by Lyman Howe in the East and the Beatty brothers in the West. Still, there was a significant number of semi-regional exhibitors that covered the Midwest or the South, or just a few states. When the movie-making machines first appeared, they were caught in a trap between being labeled as a novelty and people using them in practical ways. While the places that showed moving pictures were increasing, the interest in the process was also tantalizing people to find other uses for the machines, as well as improving the processes that already existed. We have seen some of that already, because most of the makers of the projectors had looked for ways to improve the imagery or the performance of their machines. Edison, Robert Paul, and George Spoor had all improved their machines in one way or another, but others were also looking to improve them. For example, I came across an article about a professor from Duluth, Minnesota, who had developed a phono-co-op graph. Supposedly, he had achieved what Edison was still struggling to develop at this time, the marriage of sound to moving pictures. It can be assumed that, like Edison, he managed to unite and synchronize the phonograph with a projector. But as the phono-co-op graph would soon disappear from the newspapers, and that Edison would not be able to develop this kind of machine until the early 1910s, it's probably doubtful that this professor managed to have his machine working properly for any length of time. The phono-co-op graph was just one of many odd or interesting stories about the movies from this time. Like I said, interest in the movies seemed to be spreading laterally. It was appearing in more and more small cities and larger towns, and you could probably find more mention of moving pictures in Marshalltown, Iowa, or Topeka, Kansas, than you would in some New York newspapers although I certainly did not do a word count on this. When you rule out all the mentions of moving pictures that were simply advertisements for up-and-coming or current shows, there are still quite a number of articles, although they are not easily defined or put into categories. There are a small number that are simply complaints or praises for the movies, and some of these are also promotional. There are personal ones, and some of these involved accidents. There are two bigger categories, one being articles of interest about making movies, and the most popular seem to be about the interesting or innovative ways to use this novelty. I think I'll start with the latter category first. If anything really defines how the process of moving pictures had changed from being a novelty to becoming something that holds a much deeper fascination within our culture, it was the willingness of people to seek out alternative uses for moving pictures. If any concept ties these stories together, it's the fascination that some people had with using the movies to educate. Over the next decade, there would be a number of these stories about how the movies could help to educate people on this subject or that subject. 
The wonderful actuality recreations from Miliez and even from Edison suggested to some a way to recapture historical events. And there were also a small number of articles about using movies to help advance science. Some of these ideas would involve filming microscopic organisms through a microscope or filming nature in unusual but important ways. The article I found that was really interesting was a rather in-depth look at filming surgery. Sigmund Lubin, the rebel renegade filmmaker in Philadelphia, filmed two separate surgeries involving the removal of tumors at a Philadelphia hospital. This was rather revolutionary at the time. Lubin had a degree as an optometrist and was hoping to clear up his cinematic reputation as a pirater of other people's films by providing science with well-made surgery films. He had come across this project in Paris when he met a surgeon wealthy enough to build his own surgical film studio. Unfortunately, it seems that what he lacked was basic camera skills. Lubin seems to have wanted to return the favor by showing that quality surgical films could be made. It shouldn't be forgotten that the idea of using moving pictures to help science goes back to Etienne Jules Murray, and others seem to have picked up where he left off. Some of the film's surgical shorts made their way to America and inspired other ideas. To quote the article, Experts in the Department of Agriculture found it possible to convey by this means, meaning moving pictures, widespread instruction in seed raising, care of plants, shrubs and trees, and a simple surgery of farm animals. Returning to Lubin's idea, the article continues, Spectators in the amusement world quickly saw in this new process an opportunity to coin public curiosity into dollars. They hastened to present it in multi-form aspects as a toy for popular entertainment. They are referring to marketers who wanted to market these scientific films as entertainment. I don't know how successful this idea was, but over the next decade or so, a niche market in education and scientific films would evolve. At this time, Lubin was entangled in Edison's snares. In fact, he had spent time in Europe in an attempt to avoid Edison's lawsuits. By 1903, this scene had temporarily calmed down, and it seems that Lubin was also looking for other ways to use the movies that were outside the realm of Edison's thinking. Interesting, at around this time, Chicago filmmaker William Selig was also caught in Edison's trap. For a time, he was using his moving-making machinery to produce industrial films for the likes of Philip Armour and Company, a major American meatpacking company, and even firefighting films for Kansas City's ex-fire chief, George Hale. Roy McArdle of the popular Everybody's Magazine also discussed using movies as a form of education, espousing examples such as providing a Midwestern child a moving image of a shoreline, or showing city children moving images of cows, horses, and farms. The ideas went on and on. 
What's truly interesting about his article and others like it was the faith they all placed in using movies as an educator. This point never did completely go away, but this strong sense of faith about the educational abilities of the movies seemed to last into the World War I years. This faith would be resurrected when radio first appeared, and then television and later the computer. This eternal faith in technology seems to be almost as strong as does the one for religion. Another use for movies that was repeatedly mentioned was as an aspect in Broadway plays. This was spotlighted in an article about Edwin Owing Town's new play, Too Rich to Marry. Town was a well-off Chicago lawyer who in his middle age unleashed his latent literary talents upon the world in a kind of scattered shotgun way. He wrote poems and a novel as well as a non-fiction book of sorts, and he even wrote a book on the philosophy of Jesus. He also wrote plays with his play Other People's Money spending a few weeks on Broadway. By 1903, he was touring his play, Too Rich to Marry, and using the novelty of the moving pictures to draw people into the show. While there were a number of touring groups using movies as time fillers whenever the sets needed to be changed, Town seems to have included the movies into his show as part of the play. He was not the only playwright or producer to do so. This novelty certainly did not create a trend, nor was it the same thing as the ideas of using movies as backdrops in plays, but it does show what lengths people were going to make room for the movies in their lives or to use them in some offbeat way. It's quite obvious that the moving pictures were no longer just a fad, but were becoming cultural currency. This was happening to another fad from the mid-1890s, the bicycle. This fad started out slowly, with all sorts of eccentric biking styles available, but once a form was settled upon and models were available to purchase, they became quite a fad, and they didn't go away. Women in particular discovered the bicycle, and it became a symbol of freedom to feminine culture. Some historians and commentators of the time suggest that the bicycle launched modern feminism. The movies were also changing the public's minds in a cultural way, and this was before the important films had yet to be released. Just the act of watching moving images and grasping the various ways they could bring a scene to life or to tell a story, forced people to comprehend its artistic complexity. One popular storyline about the movies was its use in other lines of occupation, especially in public relations. In Wisconsin, it was used to sell land in the northern, most forested part of the state, but for a number of other states, it was also being used as a promotional tool for the state's boosters. The St. Louis World's Fair was just a year away, and a few states, or more appropriately at the time, a state and a territory, were debating about using movies to promote their homeland at the fair. Hawaii, then a territory, was having a tougher go of it, 
as quite a number of people refused to agree to the money needed to make those movies, but Nebraska was having a serious discussion over the project. Previously, the nearby state of Minnesota had commissioned a film for the Buffalo World's Fair, and now Nebraska was serious about exploiting film to entertain the audiences at the St. Louis celebration. Surprisingly, another popular topic for newspaper articles was the making of movies themselves. This, too, should suggest that the movies now carried a good amount of cultural interest that went beyond its status as a novelty. There were a small number of articles on the making of films in various locations. If the public had no interest in moving pictures, then there would have been no need to write these articles. The first article came from Philadelphia. Apparently, a small crowd of people gathered to watch two women duel along the banks of the Schuylkill River outside of Philly. While no mention is made of the name of the women, some of the onlookers ran to get the police, only for everyone to discover that the duel was being staged for a movie camera, which was called the ubiquitous picture machine. That means the movie camera seemed to have been everywhere. After that brief report, the reporter made an interesting speculation for that time. What an odd world it will be when a number of people do nothing but simulate all sorts of acts for other people to look at. Battles, courtings, duels, getting married, dying, acting the buffoon, and in every way possible doing something unreal with no present audience to be impressed, and no one to applaud or to hiss except the photographer. What would those people think of the process now? Then there was this article about the Miles brothers, who I have barely mentioned in this podcast so far. Right now, I know almost nothing about them, although I hope to mention them at the appropriate time. The article was from an Alaska newspaper at a time when the state was still a territory. But pedestrians on this town's version of Broadway spotted a train pulling out from White Pass. On its front end, known as a pilot, but which most people know of as a cowcatcher, was the sight of two men and a camera lashed to the pilot. Both men were strapped to the engine, one standing erect alongside the machine and the other seated under the big black box, engaged in holding securely the legs of the instrument, and both looking straight ahead. Later, officials of the White Pass train explained that these two gentlemen, the Miles brothers, were going to film footage from the train as it passed through the mountains. The point of this film was to use it to highlight a lecture on Greater Alaska and the Klondike. How much this lecture was used, I don't know. In the July 28, 1903 edition of the New York Tribune, I came across what was probably the first interview with a movie actor, although his name is not known. The article is about the challenges that actors faced making these films, and the article begins with the writer reciting the final acts in a round of vaudeville performances before the movie shorts appear. 
For a long time, film historians believe that as the final act in vaudeville turn, the movies were used to chase people out of the vaudeville houses in order to let the next crowd in. Supposedly they did this because most vaudeville houses were run continuously, so running the movies was a bit like turning on the lights in a theater. This belief went way back, and it too contributed to the idea that the movies were kind of stalling at this time. But it's probably not true. I've been highlighting a number of different ways in which the movies were continuing to hold the attention of the public, as well as the way that the public had responded to these varying ideas. Instead, the movies in the vaudeville houses may simply have been acting as a placeholder or a signpost that informed the crowds that the next round of vaudeville acts were returning. As vaudeville was mostly continuous, people entered and left as they chose, and they didn't need a movie to give them the permission to leave. Anyway, back to the newspaper article. When the news writer saw the movie in the vaudeville house, he started to wonder about the people who appeared in those films, so he talked to a number of these actors. I'm going to read rather extensively from this long article, but it does seem to be the first. Now, a word of warning. The writer, who was not known, also hid the actors behind some of their character names. Anyway, the writer met the actors at the Edison studio. At the time, the Edison studio had taken over the top floor of a building off of Broadway on 28th Street. The reporter described it as a half-photography studio, half-theater, and the space was cluttered with objects used in the Edison films. Such histrionic properties as hats, boots, slippers, crowns, swords, guns, brooms, uniforms, armor, sunbonnets, mattresses, and bathing suits. A bull terrier slumbers in one corner. He referred to the dog as another property. The actor he interviewed said, And so you wonder why I'm not killed in this business. Yes, I do get a lot of hard knock, but they can't do me up. I've been a tumbler ever since I was 12 years old. It was then that the circus came to town and I began practicing in my father's barn. I've kept turning handsprings and taking falls ever since. I used to act in vaudeville, but I like this business better. As for the other actors in the article, he wrote that Many play at Broadway houses at night, and thus one may recognize here or there actors and actresses whom perchance he saw upon the stage only the night before. The amateur is a persona non grata here. Everything is so magnified by the lens of the kinetoscope meaning Edison's projecting kinetoscope, that faults in facial expression or bodily movements show more plainly in moving pictures than in the flesh and blood performances on the stage. The story also includes a man named Weary Willie. The character was originally from a British film, so this man was probably tied to a vitagraph or an Edison knockoff of the British short. He said, Say... I hope I don't get such a ducking today as I did in Prospect Park yesterday in posing for that sketch, The Tramp in the Nursing Bottle. 
That was an Edison film from 1901. But you didn't ruin a good suit of clothes, interrupted a clean-shaven youth with a prominent nose. He always takes the part of the dude. And yes, he used the word dude. That was one time that I didn't get the worst of it, Weary Willie said. You see, we got a nurse in the park to stand by for our part in the picture. Brooklyn nurse girls always like to have their pictures taken. They have so many babies to take care of, I suppose. It's sort of a diversion for them. The dude got aboard and was paddling in the pond nearby. It was his part to save me when the time came. Well, I sneaked up to the baby carriage and swiped the bottle. And I was just going to satisfy that insatiable thirst of mine when the nurse grabbed me and threw me in the pond. I had thought it was water. It wasn't. It was Brooklyn mud. Soft, slimy mud. The dude came up in the boat to save me, and he was all dressed up. I'll soak him, I says to myself, for bringing me to such a hole. It'll make the picture more realistic, too. I grab the boat and send him over the gunwale like a frog. There are a number of other stories within this article about incidents while filming movies, including getting sprayed during the classic Gardener in the Bad Boy film as obviously it wasn't considered a classic then. Willie told the story of dressing up in bad clothing and running into a hotel to escape park police, who believed he was a bum. When he ran into the elevator, the operator threw him out. He finally got someone to explain that they were filming a moving picture, and they proceeded on their way. Or when he was chased in the movie The Dude in the Boot Blacks, They caught him in the end and rubbed his face down with shoe polish until he looked as if he was in blackface. Interestingly, the reporter mentions the names of two women he talked to. One was Mae White and the other was Vivian Vaughn. The only Mae White I can find at this time in New York entertainment was a singer who worked with illustrated songs and a Lily Mae White who did a little work in theater. It could have been either one. As for Vivian Vaughn, she did appear in the Edison film, The Life of the American Fireman. She played the woman trapped in the apartment. Now, I know the subject of that interview was Willie. Still, Vivian Vaughn made no mention of the American Fireman film in this interview. And it was at least six months after its release. Instead, Willie and Vivian discussed a drowning scene and the reactions by the people who were watching the filming. Finally, there are the accidents, complaints, and jokes. I'll start with the Biograph drink. An exchange tells us of a new brand of whiskey. It's called the Biograph. It's presumed that three drinks will make a man see moving pictures. Then there is a review from Nebraska. The moving picture show at the new theater Saturday evening was the most stupendous fake ever given to the public in this city. How a man can have the gall enough to put a show of that kind into a town the size of Missouri Valley is more than we can understand. As for an accident, The flipping of a lighted match at the casino theater late Sunday night is responsible for the burning of a barrel of moving picture films valued at more than $100, and a cigarette caused the striking of the match. 
and two interesting human interest stories. In this first one, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of independent theater troops at this time were starting to use moving pictures as time fillers between acts of a play. That will explain why this story is included. The many friends of Tom Lennon will be sorry to hear of his continued misfortunes as gleaned from the following from the Aberdeen News. The news a few weeks ago, remember this is 1903, printed the story of a run of hard luck that Tom Lennon, the actor well known in Aberdeen, had been experiencing and now the telegraph tells of another loss. In the first chapter of Ill Luck, Tom's wife ran away with one of the actors in his acting company. Then the treasurer ran away with all the cash, and Tom's wardrobe also disappeared. He pulled himself together and was getting along all right until Pomeroy, Iowa was reached when $500 damage was done to the baggage and paraphernalia of the company. The dispatch says, A drayman was unloading the company's baggage upon some trucks when the westbound flyer came through and struck the drayman's wagon, which was on the main track. The baggage was scattered along the right-of-way for half a mile. A gas tank, actually an oxygen tank, according to other articles, that was used with the moving picture machine exploded and tore a large hole in the railroad station platform. All the company's valuable picture films were made useless. And this last one involves a woman in England. A number of returned soldiers from South Africa, meaning the Boer War, recently attended an exhibition of moving pictures in London when in one of the South African scenes they recognize an officer friend. The wife of the officer, on being told of this, wrote to the manager of the theater and asked that this picture might be put on on a certain evening when she would purposely journey from Glasgow. She had not seen her husband in over a year, but at last observed him in a group on the screen of a cinematograph. This has been a picture of what life surrounding the moving pictures was like just before the movie started to become interested in narratives. Thanks for listening and hope you listen again.